welcome everybody to our Healing of America seminar number one, God's Hand in Building of America. We're on section number three tonight. There are four sections in each seminar. So we are on section number three, the war that would set them free. Oh, I love this class today. I think you're going to love some of the stories and things that we're going to talk about. My name is Julene Jackson. I'm the National Vice President for Moms for America. The whole premise is liberty begins at home. When mom, mom and dad revere and love America and understand and know the stories and the miracles of America, their children will know this. And they might not immediately, you know, pick it up and be, uh, become a convert like mom and dad, but there are, we know our children. The children, our teenagers, our adult children, they're, they're very cognizant and mindful of what mom and dad do. And um, sometimes our example says all that they will need to know as they progress in life and ultimately different things begin to become more important to them. I began to attend these Healing of America seminars uh, and cottage meetings, group of five, six, seven moms meeting together once a month in a home. And we started off by reading the 5,000 year book, 5,000 year leap book. Excuse me, I've got some boys coming in right now. And inevitably, boys, inevitably, the things that we were learning in our cottage meeting, we went home and I began to teach them in our little family devotional with my children. And my husband, I know at first he thought I was a radical right-wing nut because we'd just been teaching, you know, a little Bible story and we'd sing a song and we'd pray and that was our morning devotional. And I began to teach principles of liberty and stories of America. And it, it must have touched his heart because he began to study on his own. And when I began to take these Healing of America seminars 10, 11, 12 years ago, he began to come with me. And he not only went through the whole series, he began to teach them in the community. And he sat on the Thomas Jefferson uh, Center for Constitutional Studies, their board. And ultimately, he would go on to run for the state Senate in Utah and win. And, you know, it wasn't until he and I began together to learn these things together and to teach them together in our family that things really took off. And as Al would teach and serve in the community and teach these principles, oftentimes we would do it together. And when you have a husband and a wife that is bearing witness of these truths and of constitutional principles and our founding fathers, that's a pretty magnificent force. And I think God smiles when a husband and wife, sometimes it's the woman that it's, you know, kind of wakes up to it first. Sometimes it's the man, whoever wakes up to it first, if they can both kind of come along together, that, that's a force to be reckoned with. So um, we're saluting the Swartz in Cincinnati. Good job. We love it. We love it. Well, I just came back from Tampa, Florida yesterday. Vivian, our wonderful manager over our cottage meeting and Moms Links is still in uh, Tampa, Florida. Mm -hmm. The Moms for America are on fire in Florida. That's a really amazing place to be right now. They love freedom. They're patriotic. They're um, moms in Polk County, Seminole County, which oversees Orlando and Tampa are um, wanting to start cottage meetings all around that area. Moms coming together to learn these principles of freedom and the constitution. And so we went and uh, did some organizing and training and spoke and a hundred mothers came out and it was thrilling to see this. 
And um, I, I just know how transformative it will be in their lives and in their marriages. As we learned this material, it was transformative, not only in our marriage, but in our home and, and the things that we were able to do in the community and within the state, I would have never imagined it if you had told me. So I'm so thrilled you're with us today. Last week, we talked about being raised up for this very purpose, the great father of the American Revolutionary War, Samuel Adams, and the genius of Thomas Jefferson. He truly had been raised up and born uh, at this time to do what he did in, in writing the Declaration of Independence. Remember the very first week we started, we talked about the great stories of Joan of Arc and Christopher Columbus and, and the Pilgrims. There is a wonderful movie um, and the mamas in Tampa were talking about it and it reminded me. So the moms right now in Florida are um, going through the 12 week introductory lessons. This is the cottage meeting resource manual and all these classes are online. We taught them last year during COVID. We're about to uh, film them in a professional studio. It was kind of COVID quality a year ago, but the mamas were reminded me there's a wonderful movie so it's summertime. So I'm going to make some recommendations uh, uh, throughout our class tonight, but a show by the name of Monumental. It came out in 2012, Monumental by uh, Kirk Cameron is kind of the host of it. And I believe you can pull it up and just watch it on YouTube, to be honest with you. But it talks about the pilgrims and why they did what they did. And is this one playing? And, and this one is clean. I know I made, I made an X-rated recommendation, The Last Kingdom on the Anglo-Saxons last week or two weeks ago. I'm still, I'm still feeling a little badly about that recommendation, <laughs> even though Al and I just finished the last, the last one uh, last night. Monumental, you can watch it with your children, with your grandchildren. It is beautiful. And to hear those mothers rave about that, I, I realized I, I hadn't shared that one. And that's about uh, the pilgrims. And so um, anyways, okay, so I think uh, we will get started then. Remember, um, if, you, if you don't, here is the manual we're using this week. And I forgot to bring my manual, seminar manual two down, yes. So if you haven't ordered that seminar two, go ahead and order it now. So when we start the class in two weeks from now, uh, next week we'll have our last lesson in seminar one, and then the next week we'll start on seminar two. So you can order them on the Moms for America store for $12. It's probably a good idea just to go ahead and order all 12 if you feel like you can make that commitment. All four, all four, all four manuals. And remember the whole idea is to maybe study ahead of time and write in fill in the blanks, read, fill in the blanks, um, to kind of have a multi-sensory experience of listening, of writing, of seeing, and, and learning helps you retain, you have a greater retention. And so this is why we do the fill in the blank here. Okay, so here we go. The war that would set them free. Excuse me as I turn my pages. So once the our founding fathers had decided, made that decision to declare their independence and to formulate a new government that would unite these little states into a solid national union uh, unit. About a month before this, they announced a committee to appoint some to come and draft their first constitution known as the Articles of Confederation. And it was that first constitution <laughs> That almost caused them to lose the Revolutionary War because it really had no tooth 
notique that was loosely drawn. You know, little did the founders know it would take really 11 more years before they would be able to put a sound constitution together in 1787. They had a lot to learn between 1776 and 1787. And Thomas Jefferson wrote, we have never been permitted to exercise self-government. So when now forced to assume it, we are novices in its science. And so Al is going to go on and teach our section two and three. Take it away, Mr. Okay. Jackson. Okay, great. Section two, a country without a constitution. So in order to win wars, you need a strong central government to fund, direct, and lead an army and a navy. The challenge for the rebels was creating a strong enough government to conduct the war but without infringing upon the independence of the 13 colonies. They wanted freedom from a strong, over-oppressive central government, but they were reluctant to create one needed to conduct the war. So we've got the Articles of Confederation. They thought they could whip one together in just a few days. And they asked John Dickinson from Pennsylvania to take the lead on drafting up these articles. However, his first draft created a government just as strong as the one in England that they're fighting to separate from. So Congress received Dickinson's draft on July 12th, which was just eight days after they had declared independence. So after they threw that version in the trash, thank you very much, Mr. Dickinson, but this isn't gonna work. They debated it for 16 months and a new draft was proposed on November 15th, 1777. This draft, however, went the complete opposite, meaning they left the central government extremely weak and the states very independent, which is not a surprise coming from a group of independent-minded people. So this central government that they created was really kind of a sham of the central government. Number one, they had no taxing authority, which means that they had no ability to raise money to fund the army and the Navy. Number two, no judiciary. And number three, just as important as the first one, no executive, no person responsible, given responsibility with, you know, with limited authority, but fixed responsibility, no executive to, to kind of provide a check and balance over the Congress. So the founders, and we'll discuss this a lot next week. The founders' political spectrum, and it's in the, it's in our book here under C. The founders' political spectrum has rulers' law or tyranny on the left, and no law and anarchy on the right. This new government was closer to no law, no anarchy, because there was no real, real strong central government. So in that section for next week, we will discuss in detail how the founders during the Constitutional Convention found the right balance, which was right in the middle, people's law, where there's enough government to provide security for the people, but not too much to abuse the rights of the people. So the Articles of Confederation were ratified on March 1, 1781, which is interesting considering the war ended in 1783, so it didn't mean too much as the 13 states were more or less 
operating under the Articles of Confederation. So while they're debating it, George Washington is still fighting this war. So number three, section three. Despite the weak Articles of Confederation, the war was on. And I have to take an opportunity here, Julian's gonna talk about this in some detail in the next session, but we have to salute a special shout out to General Washington because a man of lesser metal would have just crumbled under the circumstances with which he had to fight a war. And one of those reasons, as we indicated before, the articles did not provide the cent a strong enough central government with taxing authority to fund the war. So it was extremely difficult. So you, you go to Maryland and you say, Maryland, where are your men and the money we need to conduct this war. Maryland comes back and says, well, New York hasn't sent her money, so why should we? So they went back and forth. And as a result, we had the experience at Valley Forge and a year later at Morristown where men died of cold, disease, and starvation. So these lack of resources meant that they had no trained army and no Navy whatsoever to go up against the most powerful empire on the earth at that time. And that was Great Britain who had the largest army and the most powerful Navy in the world. Fortunately for America during this time, and this is also divine providence, the English were also embroiled in a conflict with France. It was called the Anglo-French War, which went from 1778 to 1783. This is the Anglo-French War. And England had to divert resources away from the war in America to theaters in Europe, India, and the West Indies as they were fighting over dominance in the English Channel, the Mediterranean, the Indian Ocean, and the Caribbean. These are massive trade routes. So they were fighting with France over who was gonna control them. Another hill that the rebellion had to climb was in the form of a, a citizenry that was really disunited in the desire for freedom. One third supported the cause. One third were still loyal to the crown. They were called Tories and one third were indifferent. So early in the war, the assistance from France came only in the form of providing supplies, which of course was helpful, but the impact of her troops and naval support wouldn't come until later in the war. Over to you, sweetheart. Okay. I didn't know that they were fighting another, some, some other conflicts. You stick with me and you'll learn a lot. <laughs> wow, I learned something new every single day being that, married to I you. need to take it. Do I look this good to you all as I look to myself tonight? I had no <laughs> idea. This is incredible. We're all so impressed with ourselves when we get on Zoom. Woo. Vivian, did you like that one? <laughs> Vivian's not looking impressed, but she probably just, she wants to go home. <laughs> well, very good. Thanks, sweetie. So um, we're on section number four, the defeat that seemed the logical end. So we talked about last week how the first part of 1776 were really difficult times. We call it the glorious, you know, seventh year uh fateful 1776. Well, if the early part was difficult, the latter part couldn't, wouldn't 
compare. I mean, I mean, the earlier part wouldn't compare to this latter part of 1776, the disasters that would strike uh, the American forces. So they declared their independence in 1776. And by August, the British have mobilized under General William Howe, the largest army that had ever been assembled in uh, on the North American continent. And they also, the Brits brought their largest fleet, the largest fleet Navy that, that had ever been seen in the Western hemisphere. So the battle for New York uh, in, in August of 1776 went very badly for uh, the little patriots. Without a Navy, Washington could do, but just put up a little token resistance. And by the latter end of August, the Americans had been driven from Long Island and they were forced to abandon the city of New York and flee up through White Plains. And um, they had to uh, leave New York City, which was the, lar the second largest city in the colonies at that time next to Philadelphia. There's a wonderful story here about the miracle of the fog, though. Um, it's called The Miracle of the Fog on Long Island. So the um, American troops were really trapped along the shores of Brooklyn. So they would have been overlooking the skyline of Manhattan, but I'm sure there was no skyline. And, and I'm not sure if they called it. <laughs> there was no Statue of Liberty. But, you know, in modern times, this is what they were looking, would have been looking at the Statue of Liberty, the skyline of Manhattan. But um, so there was 20,000 British troops at this point in New York and 400 ships. So Washington retreated to the East River to evacuate. And what happened is ferocious winds begin to um, blow up and the Brits ships weren't able to make it down where they were. So they decided just to camp out for the night and then go attack uh, Washington and his soldiers in the morning. Well, George Washington did the unthinkable. Now he had 9,000 troops. He crossed 9,000 of his troops that night across the East River. He set decoy fires up so the Brits would think that they were camping uh, along that river as well. And then this is when God rolled in thick fog rolled in and they were able to all cross without the British knowing that. And when they woke up the next morning, they were gone. And George Washington would go on to say the finger of Providence blinded the eyes of the enemy that night. So morale was low, however, because chronically every time they lost a, a, a fight, you know, that, that impacted the troops. They were short of supplies. There was no good ammunition. There were, food was um, scarce. And George Washington knew in 1776, heading into the fall and winter, that they needed a win. So Christmas time comes around, 1776, and the enlistments for the soldiers are going to end December 31. And he said, it's victory or it is death. We're going to lose it. We're, we're going to lose the war right in the beginning. And so this is known as the famous Washington Crossing. Have you heard of it? The, that famous picture, it's at the, in the Met, that big, takes up the whole wall. 
And um, Washington Crossings is actually a city in Pennsylvania. And then you have the Delaware and then Washington Crossings on um, the New Jersey side as well. It's only about an hour and a half from us here in Washington, D.C. And Al and I have gone and visited several times. Put this on your bucket list. Washington Crossings in Pennsylvania. There's a beautiful visitor center. They actually do it every year. Yes. At Christmas time, they do the crossing. They reenact Washington's crossing uh, on Christmas Day. And, um, you know, one of these years when we don't have anywhere to go and no kids are home, we have no invites. I would love to go and be a part of that real life reenactment. And so 2,400 soldiers crossed all evening and all night that Christmas night. If you go visit, they have the actual Thompson Neely farm where the officers and the soldiers stayed and the McConkie Ferry Inn where George Washington ate his last meal before he crossed that night. And they have a big boat barn and all these replica identical boats, only 24, remember 24 could come across and the, and the um, river was icy that night. And so just back and forth, getting the 2,400 across, imagine the 9,000, I mean, we say 9,000, but really what it took to take all the ammunition, the horses, the men across these rivers is, is miraculous. These boats are like incredibly, they're bigger than you think they are. And the picture that you talked about has them sitting, the actual boat, people had to stand. It was standing room only in these boats. They're, they're huge. So they they crossed from the uh, Pennsylvania side to the New Jersey side, December, uh, Christmas night of 1776. And then they marched for 10 miles in a blizzard to Trenton. And sure enough, that morning, to the surprise of the Haitian troops that were there, uh, they attacked and they were able to secure their first victory and defeat these 1,500 Haitian German uh, troops occupying the town. And this was really the first uh, significant victory of the war. And then they would go on to Princeton and take that town as well. This was known as the 10 crucial days from December 26 to January 6th, and which would take them uh, uh, kind of into uh, the Valley Forge period in uh, the next year, a year later in 1776. 77. Now, you know, there were many heroes in the Revolutionary War, but for sheer grit and still girded fortitude, none exceeded George Washington, to which we have, I just decorated the house for the 4th of July. I mean, there are so many flags in this house. I'm pledging every time I round the bend, but there's our George there. You know, George Washington left a life that he loved on um, the Potomac at his Mount Vernon to go and and lead these troops during a miserable eight years of war. There was actually 21 battles in total of the Revolutionary War. There would be 10 wins for the Americans, nine for the Brits and two would be draws. So at the time he left his home on Mount Vernon, I don't know if any of you have been to Mount Vernon, but it's beautiful. It's right there on the the Potomac. And um, he was a prominent farmer. He had actually five separate farms as a part of his estate. He inherited inherited, uh, this land uh, with 3,000 acres. And when he would die, he would have 7,600 acres uh, uh, total. And, um, and the home was, I think, 11,000 square feet at his death. So he left his heart at Mount Vernon and his love, Martha, 
to go lead those troops. Um, I think it's interesting that Martha would often accompany him or go with him during the winter months um, when they weren't really fighting, when both sides were kind of regrouping. And Martha would would show up at um, uh, Valley Forge and she spent from February until June with him. And she would, it said Martha would oversee the daily meals for the staff and entertain guests and officers. She would mend the soldiers' clothes. She would knit their little wool socks. She would go out amongst the troops and provide just support and comfort and a little cheer to a dismal situation because there was a lot of disease and dying. Over 2,000 soldiers died. They were there at Valley Forge for six months. I love to read about Martha and her contributions because it makes me think about that's what women do. We help anchor people in, not people, the people we love the most and, and strangers sometimes help anchor them in, in hope. And I have felt throughout my life, uh, great women, kind of the woman behind a great man, she is there to uphold him so he then could uphold this, this large army and, and the nation, really. And so I love uh, Martha's for her contribution in Valley Forge. So Valley Forge, they were there from about mid-1777 to about the spring of 78. And it was really one of the darkest times of the war. The troops uh, stayed there through the winter to try to train and recoup from the battles that they had had. Uh, near, like I mentioned, 2,000 troops have died of disease. And, and that, that think of that great picture of George Washington praying that was in Valley Forge. And it, in writings, farmers have said, oftentimes they would accidentally stumble upon the great general in the woods petitioning God. And he probably felt like he had nowhere else to go. And uh, there's the story about, I think one or two of his generals that were, were going to turn it in. They just thought it was hopeless and they found him praying in the woods and they couldn't desert him. Uh, it, it so touched their hearts that they turned and went back to their huts or, uh, or wherever they were staying. And so um, there's 26 miles in Valley Forge. There's 26 miles of bike trails and they've recreated the huts and the homes and the redoubts they're called and monuments. And there's a, a, a church there, George Washington Church, and there's this beautiful visitor center. They just redid it. You can you can rent bikes. Al and I will take our bikes up and we spend the whole day on these trails and we read the placards and we go into uh, General Washington's home and kind of headquarters at Valley Forge. It's a magnificent place to visit. Once again, it's only what, like an hour and a half from DC. Put that on your bucket list, Valley Forge. So over the course of the six months that they were there, once they got through that dire winter, who would appear but a marvelous man from Prussia, an officer called Baron von Steuben. And there's a great monument there at Valley Forge today of Baron von Steuben. And he was skilled in the art of war and he trained those men up and helped them to become more unified uh, than they had ever been. And even though the war would go on for five more years, their time at Valley Forge really be 
was a turning point with the troops. And at the time that they would leave and they go on to, to further battles after that spring of, of 1778, Valley Forge would actually be the fourth largest city uh, in America at that time because there was 12,000 troops uh, at Valley Forge. And so even though the war was going to rage on for another four years after Valley Forge in 1781, the British General Cornwallis, does that sound familiar? General Cornwallis had two encounters with Washington, which the Brits suffered great losses. And so Cornwallis was racing his troops to Yorktown. So this is Yorktown now. Now Yorktown is just about 20 minutes from Jamestown. Remember we talked about Jamestown in 1607 when the first, uh, one of the first groups from England came and settled in 1607. So Jamestown and Yorktown are very close, like 20 minutes from each other. And in the middle is Colonial Williamsburg. So if you ever go down and visit Colonial Williamsburg, you're 10 minutes from Jamestown and you're 10 minutes from Yorktown, this last uh, site of the last battle of the Revolutionary War. And, and there's beautiful visitor centers and they've re uh, recreated, you know, what the the war scene would have looked like and there's battlefields and there's ships in Jamestown. And, and so it's, it's a really a wonderful place to be. So um, Cornwallis led his troops to the water. What's that body of water right there at Yorktown? So we lived there for a year. It's the James River. The James River. And we would go, we would take our kids there often. We got these yearly passes, but um but what happened is the French, finally, the French show up. They weren't so impressive during the war, but they did show up at just the right time. The French fleet came and 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 did some real uh, disrepair to the British ships. So they had to kind of limp on back to New York for repairs. And so Cornwallis was trapped then. Washington saw this as a great opportunity. So he had the French fleet cover the sea coast, kind of that James River area. And then Washington marched his troops over land to surround them at Yorktown. And that would be it. Cornwallis surrendered. And even though King George was still trying to brace the British for a continuation of the war uh, after Yorktown, neither the parliament or the English people had any heart for it. They had just grown weary at this point. Both, both armies on both sides were exhausted, but the Americans refused to admit defeat. And that is why they prevailed. I was just talking to my little 26-year-old daughter today, and we were talking about sometimes in life, even if all the odds are stacked against you and it does not look good, if you will just not give up, if you will just endure, that is often when God will give you the victory in life. And that certainly was manifested uh, with Washington and the soldiers there. And so it took about a year for them to negotiate, year and a half to negotiate that treaty for peace. And Washington would wait until the very last regiment of the British troops had departed from New York City before he entered New York City in December of uh, 1783. So even though their last battle of York town uh, was had in 1781. He didn't actually enter New York uh, uh, with his troops. 
and where he was going to bid farewell to them until 83. And there's the most touching farewell dinner that he had there in New York City that night at Francis's Tavern. And Francis's Tavern exists today in New York City. It's down in the Wall Street area in the financial district on Pearl and Broad. And he had his last, it's called uh, Washington's Farewell Dinner. And you can still go, you can eat there. It's like a colonial tavern in New York City. And Alan and I have eaten there several times. And then up on the second floor is a museum. And that's actually where Washington had dinner that night. Francis Tavern uh, hosted this dinner. Can I just give you a recommendation? You put Francis's Tavern, you want to go there. You want to eat there and you want to go up to the little museum uh, on the second floor. If you Google patriotic tours of New York City, there's the most wonderful tour, a two and a half hour walking tour that you can take in New York City. And that's the name of the company, Patriotic Tours of New York City. I think it's $40 a person. And she, her name is Karen. And she's a great patriot. I've taken her tour a few times. And she walks you through that downtown Manhattan area to some significant Revolutionary War sites. You meet at City Hall. And then it's two and a half hour tour, walking tour. And then she ends at uh, across the street from this Francis Tavern. And so you, uh, by that time, you're hungry too. So you just got to eat at Francis's Tavern. It's the most delightful half day in New York City. It just fills you with such patriotism to go to these relatively unknown sites. You might not know they're mm -hmm. even there unless you took a tour like that. So uh, uh, that evening... Washington is there with his officers that he has probably just grown to love. And he said he hosts a, a, the dinner is held there. And he says, um, with a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your later days may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable. And then after uh, his words, it said that he wept as he went around to each of his officers and personally took them by their hand and gave them a personal word. And an eyewitness that night said, such a scene of sorrow and weeping I have never before witnessed. And so, you know, to go there to that uh, tavern and just kind of just imagine what, the, you know, the emotions that had been felt in the words that might have been said that night. It's just a really special, I think, beautiful place um, to visit. And then from there, December of, of 1783, uh, he would then go on to Annapolis, Maryland, which was a, the temporary capital of the U.S. at that time for a year. And Annapolis, Maryland is such a wonderful place to visit. That's where the Naval Academy is now. We live in Maryland, Chevy Chase, Maryland. And there's a placard there at the Capitol that talks about George Washington resigning his commission as commander in chief of the Continental Army to Congress there that uh, day in December, on December 23rd, just two days before Christmas, 1783. And when he spoke uh, at that meeting that day at the Capitol in Annapolis, Maryland, he spoke about God intervening. And, you know, he would go on to mention 66 times that he, 67 times that he saw or felt the divine hand of providence directing the events of that revolutionary war. And then when he began to speak of his appreciation for his officers, his little emotions welled up in him again and he couldn't speak and his voice faltered. And it was said that all the spectators that were there wept 
and hardly a member of Congress who did not drop tears. And so if I could just recommend so many good stories. We talked last week about the real George uh, Thomas Jefferson. This is the real Thomas, Je uh, sorry, real George Washington book. You can buy it on the Moms for America store. Um, it's so good. About, oh, two thirds of the book is just uh, the citations in the sources. And so, uh, I mean, you almost want to just read the sources and the citations because they, they're so interesting to me. But it's, And they're divided up by topic. And the citations yes. are divided up by topic. Yeah. So I I have read this to my kids. I've read this out of uh, stories out of this book for years. It, it's a it's a great book to get. I would I would really recommend it. Um, <clears throat> and so there. Oh, and you know I forgot to mention um, when when George Washington was at Valley Forge, he had a vision. Uh, an angelic an, an angel came to him. And uh, in, in his room one afternoon, and he spent the whole afternoon in that room. An angel came to him and showed him the three periods of history uh, that would be in this new uh, country. He showed the angel, showed him the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and other wars. And um, and it, you know, as I think about, uh, and, and the angel said, "Look, you're going to prevail," you know, and and it will be you know a, a difficult experience but you are you are going to prevail and so george washington came out of his room later that afternoon after an afternoon of a heavenly vis visitor and vision and uh, a soldier was outside his door by the name of anthony sherman and he told anthony sherman what had just happened and he said i do not want you to tell anyone about this vision until i have died and so Anthony Sherman did not say anything until after, how many years did he come forth? But, but um, this vision is recorded in the Library of Congress. And if you just Google George Washington Prophecy of America, YouTube, up comes all kind of information. There's a really good 30 minute uh, explanation of the vision by Trey Smith. So if you Google YouTube, George Washington Prophecy of America, Trey Smith, I just listened to that the other day and it is fascinating. I think what a tender mercy that God gave to George Washington to, to have him see what was going to transpire because otherwise I don't, I, I, I don't know if he would have had the heart or the stamina or the endurance to do what he did. And so God rise, raises up men and heavenly men sometimes to just, you know, give us the courage to move forward. And so um, anyways, can I just tell you the, you know, we have told these stories to our children through the years. And um, I, I have, we have a picture of Mount Vernon on our mantle over here. You can't see it, but my little 26 year old daughter several years ago served a church mission uh, in the jungle of um, Peru, Iquitos, Peru, along the Amazon River. And it was a very difficult time for her. And she says, there were so many times I just wanted to come home, mom. But she said, I remember in our morning devotionals, either you or dad, at least once a week, it seemed, you would point to that picture and talk about how George Washington, even though he longed for the ease of the way of his life at Mount Vernon on the Potomac, he knew that God had an assignment for him. 
and he stayed the course. And because he did, it made all the difference. And she actually said, mom, I thought of that story at those times when things felt so difficult for me on the Amazon river, where there was no cars, no motorcycles. It was just mud and slush and lice and rats. And, you know, and she's out there trying to teach people about Jesus Christ. And some days it just didn't feel like such a godly endeavor, but she remembered that story of George Washington. And she said, I knew if I just stayed the course, it might, it might make a difference to someone. And I think mostly it made the difference to her because she came home and has gone on to do some really amazing things. And I think she learned what, you know, when you, when you teach your children and grandchildren, these stories, you teach them what courage looks like. You teach them what faith looks like. You teach them what patriotism looks like. And in their hour of need, that story, the emotion of that story goes to their hearts and their thoughts and helps them to dig deep and to be gritty when they might otherwise just want to shrink. And so, we love the stories uh, that come from this uh, revolutionary time. And so after the war, I think I'm gonna turn it now over to Al to bring it on home. Okay, after the war section six, thank you, Julene. So in June of 1783, just as revolutionary war was coming to a close, Thomas Jefferson composed his fourth and final draft for a sound system of government for Virginia. He wanted to use it as a model for America. He took it with him when he accepted an appointment to be minister to France. And it was Jefferson who shared his ideas, his books, this draft with James Madison before the Constitutional Convention. And that's why Madison is called the father of the, of the US Constitution. But Thomas Jefferson played a, a tremendous role in that that we talked about in the last seminar. And then next week, we will get into the Constitutional Convention and we will make it come alive for you so that you'll feel like you were there. So as we will learn in subsequent weeks, the Constitution is based on natural law or God's law, as many of the provisions in the Constitution are based on the first five books of the Old Testament. I know we, we continue to do commercials for books, but this is... <laughs> On Christmas Day, geez, I want to say eight years ago, I got this for Julene, and she also got one for me. <laughs> it's called The Founder's Bible. It's written by David Barton, and it goes through in some detail. It's actually a, it's a big book, but it's an easy read, and it goes into some detail where he'll take a piece of the Constitution and compare it to what's in the Bible. It's, it's a fascinating read. So in 1776, just as the first free people in modern times were coming into existence, a Scottish economist and a friend of Ben Franklin came on the scene with a book called The Wealth of Nations, and his name was Adam Smith. This book helped shape the mindset of the founders with regard to economics, as they wanted natural law principles to also permeate the economy of this new country. So in this book, Adam Smith said, wealth is not gold or silver, but the essentials of life, food, clothing, houses, transportation, communication, schools, good roads, factories, and well-cultivated farms. 
Smith said, if you want an increased standard of living and prosperity, goods and services should be abundant and cheap. So how is that achieved? How is that achieved? How do you create an environment where services and goods are abundant and cheap? So there are certain principles you have to follow. Buying and selling in a free market should be based on the natural law of supply and demand to drive the marketplace. So supply and demand. In this environment, people vote with their dollars. Everyone improves his or her position by making a profit. A profit is involved. That's another principle. The secret to the successful operation of a free market is competition because it produces greater quantity, meaning more production, more profit, improve quality to attract customers, lower prices to beat the competition, a greater variety of goods and services to satisfy, satisfy customer demands. The greatest threat, however, to a free market economy is government interference. That's regulations, that's high taxes, price fixing, fixing of wages, controlling production, controlling distribution, or, or subsidizing production. Are we seeing some of these things today? We see it in the minimum wage. Minimum wage really hurts minorities and young people because they have to pay a certain high rate wage. So young people are completely inhibited from entering the workplace. And a lot of jobs, when we were growing up, it was kids working at McDonald's and Taco Bell and some of these other places. But because of minimum wage, you see adults there working now which is fine, but those young people aren't getting the experience because of the minimum wage. And then minimum wage also means higher prices for you and I. Right, so our son, our 17 year old son got a job at Chick-fil-A in Washington, DC. We just live in a suburb of DC last year, making $15 an hour. Right. And he mostly works with grown adults. Right, and not, not as many hours as we'd like to have him work. And then there was only two or three kids that were part of those shifts that he would work. Yeah. So we also see it in controlling or subsidizing production. We see it in the oil industry and we see it with farmers where farmers are paid money not to plant crops. So the founders envision the role of government to simply serve as a referee to prevent four things. Number one, illegal force, mafia tactics by companies a referee to prevent fraud, a referee to prevent a monopoly, and also to prevent debauchery, which is pornography, obscenity, drugs, and prostitution. Yes, the founders thought that we needed to legislate morality to create a safe environment for everyone. Today, we see a hostility toward the traditional capitalism the founders gave us. The founders plan has its foundation in individual freedom. As Alexis de Tocqueville said, quote, democracy extends the sphere of individual freedom. Socialism restricts it. The founders envision a free market economy that would highlight the formula of prosperity identified in Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations. 
he wrote, individual freedom should be given to us to do the following, the freedom to try, the freedom to buy, the freedom to sell, and the freedom to fail. But those four things are hard to do when the government makes it difficult for people to create small businesses with onerous regulations, onerous certifications, high taxes, all of those inhibit growth and job creation. It's the pro-socialist groups begin with a hostility towards competition because of their desire, their desire to replace a competitive capitalistic society with a planned directed economy. So by destroying competition in industry after industry through overregulation and high taxes, this policy puts the consumer at the mercy of what we call today a monopoly capitalism. In other words, when you overregulate and impose high taxes, you inevitably kill small business and what you have left are the larger companies thereby creating monopolies, which are easier for the central planners to control. The goal of the socialists is to direct the economy as they believe they can even things out for people below them, for people below them. Let's even things out for people below them. So the big companies actually participate in this endeavor. And I was part of this as well. For the first 16 years of my career, I was a lobbyist for defense and aerospace industry. And every year lobbyists would converge on Washington DC representing these companies to influence the process, thereby giving them a competitive advantage. You saw it in Amazon, Microsoft, the airlines, big tech, et cetera. And what we were focusing on was keeping out competition. So in seminar three, we're gonna focus on this topic in some detail. COVID-19 last year is a perfect example of this monopolistic approach as the government didn't let a good crisis go to waste. You have to ask yourself, who did really well during this so-called pandemic? It was Walmart, Costco, Amazon, big food chains, et cetera. A lot of small businesses went out of business in this last year. And the ultimate aim is to make economic planning, the prime instrument of socialist reform. The objective is to essentially direct the economy, economic activity, to make the distribution of income conform to the current ideas of social justice. Social justice for them means a redistribu redistribution of income, thereby moving us away from the founder's plan, which is based in natural law natural law, supply and demand. And it's so interesting to note that you've got the master planners on the top directing the economy to spread it evenly among the masses while they enrich themselves. Power for them, but so-called equity for you and I meaning equal results. And I have to tell you, this plan has never worked and never will in any society ever. We need to go back to the founder's plan of natural supply and demand and create an environment for people to have the freedom to try to, what was it, the freedom to try, buy, sell, and fail. Yeah. That's it. Okay, yeah. Jelaine, back over to you for a conclusion. Well, I just love the example of um, 
football versus rugby. When people have the freedom to try, buy, sell, or fail, they are more responsible. When they are free to take the risks, they're actually more careful and more responsible. And it's like football versus rugby, that uh, European-Australian game that they play. I don't really know too much about Mm -hmm. rugby. But all I do know is in football, the players in America wear all kinds of pads and helmets to reduce the risk of injury. And they think they're just fearless out on the field. I mean, they just rip and tear into each other. Whereas rugby players wear no gear at all, but there are actually more injuries with the the NFL players than there are with the rugby players because the rugby players know that there are more risks. So they are smarter about how they play. They know that there's a very good chance that they could fail. So they're smarter. They're not anticipating bailouts or programs or, you know, kind of that kind of thing. And so I just think that's an interesting example that Mm -hmm. you are smarter when you have more freedom and more choices, you know, instead of just being reckless because, you know, someone's going to come in and bail you out or save you kind of thing. So, you know, all these principles, prosperity, uh, economic principles of the free market, really kind of make a lot of sense to us and speak to our our intuitive sense because that's all we've ever known. But back then, this was radical stuff. No one in the world had ever operated under these uh, principles of supply and demand and having specialized production and, you know, uh, uh, principles of competition and being able to make a profit. And to be honest with you, there are some people today who are very nervous by these free market principles and actually want to try and save us from ourselves and intervene more. The 15th principle out of these 27 principles that our founders used to establish uh, this country says that the highest level of prosperity occurs when there are free markets and a minimum of government regulations. And we saw how this worked in the first hundred years of America, even though we had 6% of the world's population in a hundred years time, in the early 1900s, we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth. So that showed you these free market principles along with the constitutional principles was really, uh, you know, successful and working. And so now it was going to take four more years before our founders could really provide the proper structure for this American success formula. And we will see that in 1787, this amazing story of the Constitutional Convention. And uh, and we will see, Al will um, lead that discussion next week, how this And it only took four months for these men to come together here. It took 16 months for them to come up with the Articles of Confederation and it was no good. It was only going to take four months for these men. And they say that this document was struck off by the hand of God. God truly did raise up these wise men and women to uh, fulfill his purposes. I hope you're beginning to see in this first seminar how it's clear that God was in 
the establishment of this nation. And he certainly was with George Washington and his little ragtag army beating the greatest empire in the world and all the miracles that ensued in order for this to happen. You think of that a miracle of the fog and the courage and the vision that George Washington had and just the right people showing up at the right time, Captain Von Steubing and the French fleet coming in to help win the war and the genius of Thomas Jefferson to glean and compile from history, the natural laws of sound government that he would need in order to write uh, and help write the constitution and certainly that declaration. And then Adam Smith being uh, raised up in Scotland at this time and, and coming forth with this book, The Wealth of Nations, just at the time that this new government was being formed. Mm-hmm. God really was in, in uh, the making of America. God in heaven, I, I love to say this, God in heaven did not establish this first free people in modern times just to see it collapse in oblivion. God will save and heal this land if we do our part. We saw how the men and women were willing to get on their wall and do their part in, you know, the early founding. And that is the promise of God, that if we will seek his face and humble ourselves and turn from our wicked ways, he will heal our land. And so I hope that you're kind of being energized that God is a God of miracles then, and he is still a God of uh, of, of miracles today. And he doesn't need a majority of people to bring about his purposes. They did not have a majority. In fact, you know, when you said one third was on, were patriots, one third were, have you ever heard, I thought it was 3% actually fought uh, uh, during the Revolutionary War and 3% actually uh, were on the the British side and then 94% of the people were just kind of athletes. Apathetic. 3% of 3 million fighting, that's a big number. Yeah, 3% of, of 3 million. Right. It would have been about, uh, well, I'm not really sure about that. But anyways, that, so I, I think what, what I'm saying is God works in small numbers and small means. He doesn't need a majority to bring about his purposes. He just needs enough people. And, um, and you're it. We're it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so be, be encouraged because he's got our back. And in the end, we read the book, he wins. And so don't, don't uh, get discouraged. Sometimes it's easy not to, but anyways. Okay. So that is the end of our class today. We'll see.